You know, if you had asked me that question a few years ago, I think I would have said I was uh, focused on creating an action-driven novel. And um, But in reality, you know, the action and the plot came to me only once I had my characters in mind or, or the key characters in mind. And even now, I, I'm working on a standalone um, mystery suspense, and I don't have the plot worked out. But I've written, you know, three or four pages of description for each of the four or five main characters in the novel you know, who they are, what they want in life. And I make up a backstory for each of them so I can understand how they came to be the people they are when the novel starts. And of course, most of this doesn't end up in the novel itself, but it helps me to understand how they might react. You know, when 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 I do get into the plot and, and crazy things start to happen. Hey there, my fellow sophisticated creatives. Welcome to JCV Art Studio from the dressing room. My name is Joanna. Ozzy is with me. He has peanut butter and his little dog toy, and I think we'll be good. Um, please consider this podcast a form of what I I'm going to now think of as a book radio where you can learn everything about writing, authors, artists. Next year, I'm having a few editors come on and everything you wanted to know about great Canadian fiction. I want everyone to know I am holding a contest for subscribers and the, pod the authors who've been on this podcast. I'm calling it, are you ready? Dun, 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 dun. The Spa Awards which stands for Subscribers Podcast Awards. And I wanted to thank Lanyosh Handmade, who was sponsoring the contest by providing a prize to the winning guest author. I will also be providing a prize to the subscriber. And I will be getting details out in the next coming weeks. But let's get on to today's guest. Today's author comes from Alberta. She is a member of the Sisters of Crime, the Crime Writers of Canada, and the Writers Guild of Alberta. She is a multi-published crime writer and the author of the Georgia, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Georgia Night Mystery Series. Her debut novel was a 2016 Arthur Ellis Award finalist for unpublished crime novel. This author has a Bachelor of Science degree in geology. She was a trailblazer for Canadian women conducting field exploration programs in remote areas of Canada. She likes motorcycles, which I think is really cool. On her website, this author writes, and I absolutely love this. As a child, my passions were reading to escape the monotony of childhood in a small town. Skipping rope, eating peas from my mother's garden, and trying to get my brothers to laugh so hard they'd spit their milk out at dinner. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Alice Vienna. Welcome to JCV Art Studio from the dressing room. Thank you so much, Joanna, and it's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So you are coming to us from Alberta. I hope you're staying healthy and staying safe. I guess when I was reading in your bio, you said you like exploring Calgary's parks and pathways. I'm taking it there's not much exploring going on at this time. Yeah, you're right about that. We're back in lockdown mode, um, as I guess many urban, larger urban centers are across Canada. Uh, before COVID, I walked with a group of gal pals and we would head to different areas of the city to explore new walking routes. Uh, but since COVID, I've pretty much been walking solo and uh, keeping to the parks and pathways in my own neighborhood. Okay, yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. I remember with, well, we're in lockdown, but the, the, when the first lockdown came, I w- it was in March, April, I would get the dog and around 6 a.m. we would go for a run and it was just, it was beautiful to be outside and there was no one around <laughs> like at 6 a.m. So it was just, it was so nice just to get outside a little bit. I, I remember yeah. that time too. And it was like, people took that first lockdown really seriously and, uh, was pretty deserted. I rarely ran into anybody walking on the walking paths. And of course, when summer approached, we had a few more people out and about, but now, now it's winter. And so I'm pretty sure a lot of people are staying indoors um, now as well. And it's interesting when you say winter, and I think of winter, because I've said to my sister in Calgary, oh, it's so cold here. It's like minus eight. And she, she'll respond back, cold? You call that cold? <laughs> I know. I'm not, uh, I'm not a big uh, winter person. So uh, I'm already looking forward to March and April when there's the first signs of maybe a break uh, coming. Yeah, yeah. So on to your novel, Night Blind. I'm on chapter 32. Now, am I pronouncing this correctly? Is it Georgia? Yeah, it's Georgia. Okay, good, good. Now, your heroine, Georgia, she survives a brutal attack at her workplace, which I, I, I don't quite exactly know yet, but, uh, you know, it's a life-changing event. I'm on chapter 32, okay? So uh, it's neat because you're you're... I don't want to say you're tweaking, but you're you're giving little hints of, of what had happened. Right. And um, so Georgia ventures onto a different career path and she becomes a private investigator. And I'm curious to find out what was the moment when you decided to leave your work in geology and pursue writing? Uh, was it a quick decision? Did you debate about it a bit? Well, well, interestingly enough, it wasn't a quick decision, and yet I still debated it right up until the time I quit working in 2014 to start writing full-time. And uh, I guess like many authors, I'm an avid reader, and I suppose like many people out there, um, the idea that I might someday write a book did run through my head from time to time. Uh, but the first time I really felt like I really, really needed to to be writing came in 1999. And uh, the company I was working for at the time was going through a massive transition. And I was teaching an internal course uh, that to help employees identify what their next step should be on their career path. So we were doing this little exercise where we had to describe the worst job we ever had and uh, and then write down what the characteristics were that made it the worst. And then we described the characteristics of what would be our perfect job and thought about what job or cr- job that could be that would meet most of that criteria. And I think the idea was to ter- think in terms of what jobs that company offered. But I determined that during that little exercise that the perfect career for me would, would be writing. And uh, of course, it took me another 15 years and two more career changes to pull the pin and actually do it. And uh, when I did, I still remember questioning whether I was making the right decision. Uh, But I'm happy to report I do believe it was the right decision for me. That's good to hear, because I know personally for myself, I have been, uh, gosh, 30 two years with the provincial government right and if if i want i can collect my first early pension check next april like april 2021 and i know i can say this because i know my my immediate supervisor has asked me what are you doing joanna are you thinking about it (laughs) Right? right and um yeah it's 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 definitely been on my mind especially with COVID. And uh, so that's interesting that you say you, you, deb- you debated about it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cause that's where I'm at. Yeah. yeah. It, yeah. It, even though I was, you know, there were several times during the, 
the 15 years in between 1999 and 2014 where I was sure this is what I wanted to do when the time came, you know, it's a big decision. You, you know, you're going off in a different uh, different direction entirely. I might be emailing you because <laughs> that's, that's exactly where I'm at. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about Night Blind and how it gained its wings. And I say wings because of the reference you make to butterflies in your novel <laughs> and how Night Blind went from unpublished to publish, published. And I'm curious, did you shop or submit Night Blind to traditional publishers first? Um, yeah, I did. Um, not very rigorously, uh, but my preference would have been to publish traditionally. But like any new author, when you first start off writing, you know, I know for me, I didn't know a whole lot and it took me a while to put all the pieces together. So at first, when you start writing or when I did, you know, I'm focused on, hey, I'm writing this novel. And uh, once I had the novel written and edited to my satisfaction, I moved on to step two. And the mental model I had in my head was um, you write a book, then you find an agent, agent will find you a publisher, the publisher's editor will then help you edit and polish the book. So uh, I started looking for an agent to represent me. And I, that was the time I also entered Crime Writers of Canada uh, and uh, was a finalist for the Arthur Ellis Award, um, as you mentioned, for Best Unpublished Crime Novel. But what I didn't know at the time was that writers had their manuscripts professionally edited before they queried agents and before they entered contests. But I didn't know that, so I just forged ahead and um, it did take me about a year to find an agent. And a month or so after I signed the contract, my agent ran into health issues. And uh, I felt kind of badly. I guess it can happen to anyone. So I waited patiently. And after about five months, uh, my agent, fee feeling up to the task, started the task of uh, submitting my manuscript to publishers. So my manuscript went to four publishers and they turned us down, but a fifth was interested and asked for the full manuscript. And so while this was happening, I just kept writing, which is why I guess I have four books pretty much finished and, and ready to, to publish at this point in time. Um, but unfortunately, long story short, my agent's health deteriorated again and he retired uh, the publisher held my book for nine months, and in the end, uh, they decided they wouldn't move on it at this point in time. And uh, so this whole process took about 18 months. And as I, I'm sure you know, this isn't an unusual story, and, and many authors out there have acquired agents, even got a publishing contract, only to have the publisher go out of business or the editor uh, change companies, leaving you know nobody at that publisher to champion their books etc. So at that point in time, I had a choice to make. Do I jump back into that traditional queue and start requiring agents uh, or do I self-publish? And uh, at that time, I, I reminded myself that I'm, I'm the kind of person that likes to be somewhat in control. <laughs> I like to make things yeah. happen. And so I decided that I would go the self-publishing route and whether that turns out to be the right decision for me, I guess I don't know, won't know for a while. Um, but I did learn that the, the timelines on traditional publishing are, were way longer than I ever imagined. And I also learned that the journey to publishing isn't linear. <laughs> you said nine months. And in nine months, you can have a book published, yeah. print copies made, and be doing promotion. One thing I have just learned, and I'm looking into is and this has been mentioned to me before is i'm looking into getting translation done on on my first novel the unraveling mm -hmm. it's because believe it or not french people i shouldn't say the the residents of france love domestic thrillers oh interesting so that's something yeah, yeah keep that and you know and the thing is we always i won't say we some of us some of us, I, I'll use myself as an example. I've always been focused on American market. Yeah. And it's like, there's a whole other world out there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if, if, 
if someone in France likes my book or a few of like my book, they really like domestic thrillers. So, hey, I'm, I'm looking into that. Awesome. Yeah. It, you know what? I am so glad you self-published because I am really enjoying your novel. Let's give your our readers a brief summary about Night Blind. Can you tell our readers? Okay. Thank you. I'd love to. So my protagonist, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, Georgia Knight, she used to be a forensic lab analyst. And after surviving this brutal attack by a fellow employee at her former place of work, um, she starts to reevaluate her life and decides she needs to live, I guess, a little more boldly than she's been living her life. And so at the start of Night Blind, Georgia already has a few months of experience as a PI under her belt, but mostly she's been chasing down insurance claims or hunting down deadbeat dads who skipped out on child support payments. And she's ready for something a little more challenging. And she's given that opportunity by a woman named Zosha Gorwitz. And, and Zosha's a Holocaust survivor who escaped Poland with her mother at the start of World War II. And Zosha's mother, of course, has passed by now, of course. But after years of looking for the family they left behind, Zosha's accepted the idea that all her family perished in the war. But then long after the last glimmer of hope fades, Zosha receives some new information that makes her think a nephew might have survived. So she hires Georgia to track this person down. It's her last chance to find family and uh, perhaps the last chance to alleviate the guilt that she's been carrying from holding on to a long-held family secret. So she, Georgia finds the man she's looking for in no time flat, or rather his obituary. She learns that he's been shot dead, but he had a son named Johnny. So Georgia turns her attention to finding Johnny. Johnny's disappeared shortly after his father was shot. So Georgia's search for Johnny takes her to the gritty streets and alleyways of Calgary's east side, where she locates several of his street buddies. They know something, but they're afraid to talk. And actually, everybody she meets is reluctant to share what they know. The police actually order her to back off her investigation, and she discovers that even the director of the homeless shelter, where Johnny stayed on one or two occasions, is hiding something. So as the attempts on Georgia's own life and that of her homeless informants start to stack up, it becomes crystal clear that someone doesn't want Johnny found. And uh, so the story continues. And as Georgia grapples with that mystery, trying to find um, Johnny, she, like her client Zosha, is haunted by unresolved feelings about the dark secret in her own past. Oh, okay. See, I'm on chapter 32. <laughs> okay, okay. Your novel is the second novel I've read involving secrets and stories of, in, of individuals who've escaped World War II. And uh, it is, you know, World Wars, uh, such devastating periods in our history. And I think it is very honorable that um, you're writing about that period, you know, bringing to light this happened. And I was wondering why, was there any particular reason why you wanted to tie in World War II with your, in your story? Well, it, it, I agree completely. It was a very devastating event in, you know, human history. But thinking back on it, I'm not, I'm not sure I started off with the intention clearly in mind. Um, but since my protagonist was new at was new to the world of PI work. I needed to give her a case that, you know, fit where she was with her career. And um, for me, it felt like looking for a missing person might be something she could tackle. But right around the time I started writing the novel, I also started getting serious about looking into my own family history and trying to uncover, you know, some information. Um, and so perhaps it was subconscious that I chose Zosha Gorwitz as the a client, a Holocaust survivor who fled Europe as a young girl. And uh, I personally know what the war did to families like Zosha through, through both my parents' personal stories and how the war severed family ties. 
scattering people across the globe, and many of them losing track of each other and never locating lost or loved ones. And uh, I, I really have very little family, and I have never met a single relative of my mother's. Um, and uh, both my parents never went back to their homeland of Poland after the war ended. So uh, we still have stories coming out today of family members finding each other after and reuniting after 60, 70 years of, of being apart. So I did like that Georgia wasn't just looking for a missing person, just looking, I say, <laughs> as if you know, but somebody yeah. that had had been has had gone missing recently or or just went missing, and that there was some history behind this person that was missing as well. See, and that's okay, that's one aspect of this story which hits me. It really hit like I, I mentioned, yeah, I'll see, because you mentioned it's the aftermath of the war. And I, I noted it down here, your line on page 287. And I, I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'd love to read yeah, it. That's if absolutely that's okay. okay. So you write, he never forgave Churchill for just handing Poland over to the Soviets. Now that hit me because you talk about parents' personal mm -hmm. stories. My mom was a young lady, I guess, early 20s. Um, just after World War II, she was, oh my gosh, I get why I like cities because she grew up in Budapest okay. and she loved Budapest and uh, she never went back. She had a chance at one point, but it, it didn't work out. And I, I feel for her, okay, that she never had a chance. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry. This was totally unexpected. Yeah. <laughs> She never had a chance to go back, okay? And she was 22, or like yeah. I say, early 20s when she left. And I remember her saying that after the war, Soviet soldiers came into Hungary and they, the women, were worried about being attacked. You know, and uh, she tells us stories about getting on a train. Like she, she left. She her she had her sister out here who sent her a passport and um it was just it was we we I don't even think we can fathom like you hear people talk about their rights right. being violated but you know <laughs> my mother's sitting yeah. on a train and she said she was with an aunt or she was with a friend and it was just common knowledge that if a Soviet soldier came on that train looked at your passport was dubious about your passport and hauled you off that train. You said right. nothing, right? Right. Even if it was your best friend, you just you didn't look at him. You said nothing, you know. And um, that's why when I read that line, man, it it yeah. hit me, as you I could know. tell. Okay. So, um, was there a, a, pit, a particular like you? I know you said when you originally started writing it, and you mentioned about go, diving back into your own mm -hmm. personal stories. Um, was there a particular message you wanted to bring across when you wrote that sentence about not forgiving Churchill for handing Poland over to the Soviets? Um, well, yeah. Well, first of all, let me yeah. say when you were describing you know, what your mother went through. And, and, you know, when I think about my own parents and what they went through, I mean, I had shivers running up and down my spine when, when you were telling the story. My, yeah. my mother was a young woman. And uh, as the war started in Poland, and, and she basically spent her whole time in a German work camp uh, during the war. And then my father ended up on the Soviet side, and he was actually thrown into a Soviet prison. Uh, for several years until the Soviet Union um, joined the Allies in their fight against the Nazis. And um, so uh, at the time uh, when, um, when, the, when Britain declared war on Germany, uh, Churchill gave the Prime Minister of Poland reassurances that Poland and Britain would be bound together by the war, you know, as allies for life. Um, at that time, you know, my father was released from prison to, to actually fight, you know, alongside the Soviets against the um, 
against the Nazi army. So um, the Polish army and the Polish people felt somewhat betrayed, I guess, after the war, um, winning the war and fighting for their freedom. They were now expected to live um, under communist rule because after the war, borders were being redrawn and renegotiated. But that eastern border between Poland and the Soviet Union, including parts of the Ukraine and Belarus, you know, were not considered in these talks. And, and, and they remained um, areas that were left uh, under under Soviet r- rule as they were, had been annexed at the beginning of the war. So uh, members of the Polish army, I know my father ended up um, fighting under the British General Anders and ended up in Italy at the end of the war. And a lot of the soldiers refused to go back to their homeland. And thousands of people, like your mother, you know, fled their countries, fearing repression and reprisals yeah. and punishing or rehabilitations and and many never went back and and uh, for fear you know that they would be targeted and uh, so like yeah. in any mass uh, exodus of refugees you know and we have examples of that happening today you know the family structure collapses family members are separated and oftentimes lost forever yeah yeah, yeah. and that's and one of the points you said. Uh, I remember her showing me maps of Hungary and she was saying Hungary is like one third of what it right, originally. Right. I, I remember the same story. Right. Poland was actually the sixth largest territory in Europe uh, before the war. And now it's just this tiny little, you know, <laughs> little country. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's been, it was divided up and, and um, given away essentially to, you know, a part part of the i guess spoils of the war almost like yeah 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 okay so we'll we'll bring up the we'll bring it up here a little bit okay so we're going to talk okay so we'll talk about some red herrings and hints and clues um and and plotting and oh my gosh when you were talking about yoja I, I'm at a scene now where you just totally upped the stakes for our poor heroine, Georgia. Um, I'm, I'm just yeah. going to say, because I don't want to give it away, because Yoja wants to contact Johnny. And I'm just, it's like, <laughs> wham, she just upped the That's stakes, right? right? <laughs> you know, because I we focus quite a bit about character in, in your novel, but at you have to keep track of the clues and you've just up the stakes, you're, the plotting, the plots. And um, Tony Olivier, when he was on the podcast, he mentioned that he liked using this program mm-hmm. called Scrivener, Scrivener, S as in Sam, C, R, I, V as in Victor, E, N, E, R, in case everyone, anyone is wondering what it, what it is. I had never heard of it before he mm-hmm. came on the, the show. And uh, I've listened to a few writing podcasts, and some authors say they use oh, an God. Excel spreadsheet. And that, that, yeah, I know, that just kind of yeah, gives me the yeah. easy. Yeah. <laughs> right? So do you do a lot of planning and outline? And I take it you don't use an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> You're right about that. No, Excel and I are not friends. And um, I, I don't use Scrivener, although I, I have heard people you use it and, and they do like it, but there is a pretty significant learning curve, I've heard. Um, so, no, I just use a Word document. And, and actually, when I wrote Night Blind, I started the novel by sitting down and writing out scenes that came to my head on index cards, you know, like the old recipe cards. And, uh, you know, then I could shuffle the cards around and get the chapters in the right order that I thought I wanted for the story. And um, so uh, I'm definitely a plotter. I like to plot out my novels. I now feel more comfortable that I don't use my index cards. I just start with a Word document. And I might end up with, you know, 15 pages or so that kind of go somewhat chapter by chapter on what happens, you know, how the story is going to develop. And um, Usually when I go to write it, you know, the chapters, I sometimes have to move around in different orders. And 
um, interestingly enough, every novel that I've written so far, the ending ends up being different than what I imagined when I set out to outline the story. Um, but I definitely need to have that outline and, and some kind of a broad construct of where I'm going with the story before I start to write. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I've, I've found that too. My, my, my original ending that I thought of nah, never happens. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I, I kind of end. So sorry, I kind of envy oh, people that say they can just sit down and just pound out this story sort of free, free form. And, um, but I'm not one of those people. I, I actually tried that about a year ago and I just ended up, you know, reaching 60,000 words in this novel I was writing and, and, and realized that I had really no idea what this story was about. <laughs> so, so, so much for that experiment. Well, let's focus on Georgia. It's a joy to participate in her story. She comes across as human. And I, I want to know, how did she come to being? And did you have a, a particular idea of what type of heroine you wanted yeah. in your story? Yeah, actually, the Georgian Knight character was starting to form in my mind probably two or three years before I even quit to, to start writing full time. And um, although I didn't have a name for her back then, but I wanted my protagonist to come across human. So I really appreciate that you think she does come across as human and not one of these sort of Hollywood superheroes that can single-handedly, you know, fight six guys in a dark alley. And, you know, she doesn't have an arsenal of weapons and she can't control somebody's behavior with her mind. And so, you know, she she's pretty much an ordinary woman, but I didn't want her to be a weak woman. I wanted her to be a strong woman. And I think Georgia has what it takes to be tough. Um, she's smart. She can think on her feet. She's tenacious. Uh, when she goes after something, she's kind of relentless in her pursuit. Um, she's resilient. And when life pelts her with lemons, you know, she bounces back, even, even though it might take her a while. Um, she's a bit nerdy and she has a sense of humor and can laugh at herself. Uh, she's not perfect, though, and she has flaws and vulnerabilities, and she knows what it's like to suffer loss. And uh, she's made mistakes in the past. She's probably going to make mistakes in the future. Uh, and I think the most important she's, lesson that she's learned from all the mistakes she's made is that uh, fear is the number one source of regret. And uh, she vows she's never going to let fear stand in the way of going after what she wants or fighting for what's right. And uh, so that was the character that sort of developed in my head. And uh, so when I but when I did start writing, I had her in mind, but um, no plot. <laughs> well, that's a great character trait, really. I mean, I'm, I'm always thinking about the new writer. OK, if you're developing your character. What's her character trait, one character trait going to be like in a deep character trait being not to let yeah. fear stop her. That's yeah. excellent. Yeah. See, and for me, I had asked this question of Dave Butler, and it's a bit of an unfair question, but I think it's a good question. And I had said to him, what do you think? <laughs> this was great. I said, what do you think of your book? What did I read? Do you think that I wrote that I read in your book? that made me connect with your character. And, and yet he was so good about it. He goes, well, I don't quite know what you read, right? which line, but um, and it, with his novel, it was the simple sentence of when his heroine says, I stink. And I, I had mentioned to him about, you know, it connected with me because I, mm -hmm. I say that many times because of running or when I was a personal trainer. And I had that exact same connection um, with your novel. Ooh. And it was on the first page. Um, do you have, you have no well, idea, I, you know what you wrote? I do know what connected? I wrote. But, <laughs> but I'm going to hear what's, the, what's connected <laughs> with you on that first page. It was, and here, like, this is another thing, because we're always told, mm -hmm. you know, you need to connect with your reader. And I'm finding it's the simple things and it's she gets in her car and she literally is like tapping the right. dash saying, come on, like last. It's, it's her car right. is about ready to break down. And, oh, my God, I have been there. <laughs> I'm not saying 
I have not, it's not, I'm not saying I've driven a lot of lemons, but just like three weeks ago, I mean, I had water coming up in the, on my carpet and I'm just like, what is going on here? You know, in the carpet of my car. And I'm just like, come on, last, last a little longer. I'm taking you to the garage. So it was that opening scene, which I thought, oh God, yeah. yes. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm you glad know, you so. say that because I, I tried to, you know, when I, when I imagine her in my head going about, you know, her job and these different scenes, I really try to try to portray her as a, as a person. And like you say, how would she react to these, you know, tiny little things, even not just the big things, but the tiny little things that go on in our lives around us, you know, and I, and I'm glad to hear you like that, um, like that description, because uh, I do think it's those sorts of things that makes our characters so real. I'm thinking note to self, you know, how she deals with small little conflicts in life. Yeah. Did you set out thinking this is going to be a character driven novel versus action driven novel? Because there's action in this novel, and I, I want to make sure people understand that there's definite action yeah. in this novel. Well, well, that's an interesting um, question, Joanna. And, you know, if you had asked me that question a few years ago, I think I would have said I was uh, focused on creating an action-driven novel. And um, But in reality, you know, the action and the plot came to me only once I had my characters in mind or, or the key characters in mind. And even now I, I'm working on a standalone um, mystery suspense and I don't have the plot worked out, but I've written, you know, three or four pages of description for each of the four or five main characters in the novel, you know, who they are, what they want in life. And I make up a backstory for each of them so I can understand how they came to be the people they are when the novel starts. And of course, most of this doesn't end up in the novel itself, but it helps me to understand how they might react. You know, when 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 I do get into the plot and, and crazy things start to happen. So, uh, you, you know, but, you know, the reason I probably would have said, you know, uh, action or plot driven a few years back is because I spend an enormous amount of time trying to figure out the plot and uh, and the character pieces seem to come to me more easily. But now in retrospect, I look at them and, and think, you know, I always, you know, start with a scene with a character and who this character is. So as I'm reading, I literally <laughs> and this is a compliment. I feel like I'm in a boxing <laughs> ring with Georgia and it's and and that is a compliment because a it was the first thing about you know your line with um about Churchill right. boom that that hit me right and then I'm reading and there's a scene where we learn that Georgia's mm -hmm. mother has passed the her like her right. mother's ghost appears and that hit me um because I, I'm doing, I I'm, I did that with the first book, and I'm I'm exploring that more with the second. But that hit me. Okay, um, I I just oh, it was it was the line. The the mom just says this this little line, and I just went oh, Okay, I'm wondering why did you bring uh, George's mother's ghost? Right. I'm getting right. little bits so, of her. So, well, once I had a good idea of Georgia was and and who what shaped her into the person she is, it it seemed to make sense because she's living with a great deal of regret and guilt about what happened the last time she saw and spoke to her mother, uh, and that's revealed near the end of the book. So, <laughs> you will get there when you hit about chapter fifty eight. Um, but, but she's been able to put the past behind her, or so she thinks. Uh, but the case she's on in Night Blind uh, surrounds her with other people's losses in life. And uh, she's she's grappling with uh, Zosha's losses, Johnny's losses, the losses that his homeless buddies have suffered. And uh, that becomes somewhat of a trigger for her to start thinking again about the losses in her own life. And um, she's also growing as a person, um, starting her own transformation in this new career as well. And her, br her brush with um, death uh, at her previous job made her realize she needs to live more fully. 
um, she's not religious, but she's trying to realize that spiritual and emotional well-being are just as important as physical or mental well-being. And I think those of us who've lost our own mothers, and I have as well, you know, sometimes feel like that connection we had with our mother is somehow still there. And in times of trouble, it, it gives us comfort. It, it's really hard to let go. I Certainly in my case, I have found that to be the case. So when a sudden breeze comes up and rustles leaves out of nowhere and then dies, and then, or a shooting star, you know, flashes across the sky, we think, you know, could that be a sign for her? And uh, in Nightblind, George's friend Gab, whose mother has also passed away, sees butterflies, and as you mentioned, and thinks it's her mother's way of telling her that she's still around. Um, Georgia would like to believe Gab's yeah. declaration that her mother's never really totally leave us. And yet at the same time, she's kind of afraid of what her mother might say to her if she were to appear. And she's not sure that her mother has forgiven her for what transpired between them. And I, I had a, uh, I, I had a right? butterfly experience too. It was, yeah, it was shortly after my mom mm-hmm. had passed, like within days and now you see why I feel like I'm in a boxing match with Georgia. <laughs> the way you've written is just hit me. Um, it was, and I'm going. I'm going to hold on to that. And uh, it was to the point where one day, it was pre-COVID. My friend Michelle and I are sitting. Um, uh, it's the mm-hmm. Empress has a beautiful garden in Victoria, and we were sitting outside during a lunch break. And she said, "Look," and it was this orange butterfly. Just was dancing around me all over the place and it's like coming close to my face and and I I had to say to Michelle I go I gotta tell you something right and yeah so to tie all these questions which I've been um asking with regards to characters there there is a purpose to this okay and again I'm always thinking about the new writer the author um like I say when a writer hears at a writing conference have your character connect with the reader um i would like to elaborate on that and i'll say um make it personal okay Mm -hmm. Um, like you said make that character flawed you have written a character georgia that is dealing with and sorry that's my dog having a shake here okay (laughs) you you've a character georgia and she is dealing with the prospect of her mother's ghost talking to her and um, when Judy Pence Shalak was on here last last week, she said all three of her heroines, she has multiple series, mystery series, all th- three of her heroines have a little part of her. So I wanted to know, Alice, do you agree with the idea that the author should make it personal to some extent with their character? Yeah, I absolutely do. And... Um... I think a lot of uh, writers, like you said, especially new writers, you know, put a bit of themselves into their characters. I, I mean, you know, the sage advice that I've heard out there um, that's given to new writers is write what you know. But I think maybe it better stated or more accurately stated, it it should say write from what you know. And um some authors, of course, can choose to draw on their personal experiences as, you know, former police officers or lawyers or, or um, you know, doctors to write, you know, police procedures or medical thrillers. And um, but I always feel that if you if you haven't lived the life that you are that your protagonist is living, um, then it's really important to use parallel experiences in your own life, you know, to infuse some life and emotion into that character and uh so that's what i've tried to do the 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 experiences and emotions don't translate directly but i draw upon you know my own experiences to try to build that into what georgia is experiencing and feeling i'm uh in connection with with researching you i was on your web like i said i was on your website mm-hmm. and i i actually love that quote about you and your brothers <laughs> okay but I'm reading about the two other books in this series. And um, I just, I'm at my desk and I'm reading the the summary of each book. And I know George's mother has passed. And I start reading the summary of One Night Stand. And night, so the listeners know, is spelt 
as in Georgia Knight's last name, K-N-I-G-H-T. I'm reading the summary of One Night Stand and the words jumped out at me, and this is in reference to Georgia. In the summary, it says, she's a murderer's daughter. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> and I go, oh my God. I thought if I wasn't hooked before, I'm just like, oh, what's happening? <laughs> you know? so, so without giving too much away, okay. Right. Can you, and thank God you self-published these these books. I tell you, um, yeah. Can you give us a little bit about the two other books and, and when they'll be released? Okay, thanks. Yeah, then the next book in the series is coming out in a few months uh, at the beginning of March, probably like March 3rd or 4th. I haven't uh, selected the date yet for the book to be released. And the third book in late summer. So um, in the second novel, um, One Night Stand, Georgia is called upon uh, by her best friend Gab Rizzo, who's a uh, personal chef, um, when a number of people become ill at a private dinner she's catered, and the CFO uh, of a weight loss company about to launch this miracle weight loss product that the world has been waiting for dies. And uh, so, so what it what starts out as an attempt to clear her friend Gab's name soon turns into something more pressing when Georgia realizes that there might be something wrong with the product that's to be released. And uh, then other bad stuff happens. So that's all I'm going to say about uh, that book. And then uh, the third book, um, Three Dog Night, is actually a modern day locked murder mystery. And um, she's hired by uh, the sister of a man that was killed, the the her brother lived in a highly wired, you know, one of these smart homes where, you know, everything's connected to everything else and has security cameras inside and outside the home. And yet this assailant gets in, kills him and leaves undetected by all the technology. And uh, so the press and the newspapers have nicknamed um, the killer, the Houdini killer. And uh, oh. so she goes about trying to, uh, find out what happened because the police are somewhat stymied and the sisters um, sort of frustrated by the lack of progress on the case. But to make matters worse, someone is stalking Georgia and uh, leaving her messages actually about her parents' death. And so, yeah, that's kind of what she's grappling with in book three. Wow. So now with the first one, you mentioned it's a weight loss product. Right. So so this company has has made this weight loss product and uh yeah, they're they're about to go live. They have a bunch of investors and uh they're actually at this big dinner celebrating their pre-launch, you know, agreement with these investors that have brought a lot of capital into the company that's about to be launched and they're going to release this miracle weight loss product which claims to help a person lose weight without any changes to lifestyle or diet. So it's it's a big thing and, and they're about to go live and then their chief financial officer is murdered. I tell you, the, the retired personal trainer in me is going, red flag, red flag. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, okay. I'm looking forward to these. Wow. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> I have to ask, and this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, but not too much. Um, have you ever been in an accident with a produce truck carrying watermelons? <laughs> uh, no, thankfully I haven't. <laughs> God, that scene, that that's a scene, uh, listeners. Oh my God, Georgia's dis I, I, like her confusion. I'm just like, <laughs> like I'm thinking, what happened? What happened? You know, and it was in just how you say she looks at a car that looks like her car, but doesn't quite look like her car, you know, yeah. like it, excellent. Thank you. My next question has to do with Georgia. She's a PI conducting her investigation and she's questioning street people. She has a tour of a homeless shelter, amazing scene where she's speaking with a homeless person and he's patting the statue of a gra gravestone. And you just mentioned about, the east side of Calgary. Now, I don't know anything about the east side, so I'm, I'm taking it 
that's not a very good area of town. And I swear, if it's not, my sister is like, no, you don't want to go there. So is the east side of Calgary a not very good area? Well, you know, Calgary's got this beautiful downtown. And I think most people that see the skyline, you know, are, are just taken aback by how gorgeous it is. But, you know, you don't have to go very far from the downtown to run into sort of these these older and, and uh, poorer um, neighborhoods and the the railway tracks run just on the south side of the um, south side of the downtown core and uh, on the east side of the the downtown area we've got a um, um, older older neighborhoods that that you know date back to the early days of Calgary which wasn't that long ago but again you know the neighborhoods are are worn down and and there's a lot of you know rental properties and and uh, unfortunately a lot of um a, a lot of poverty and uh, so we have a lot of uh people that are living sort of on the outskirts of that richer society you know congregated in that area so your scenes um like I said, with I, like I said, with the man patting the the statue in the in the in the cemetery, they're all very real. I'm wanting to know about your research with these scenes, touring the homeless shelter, like because Georgia's Georgia's getting in. And I don't want to say getting in there, but she, she's putting herself in some sketchy situations, mm-hmm. being a lone female, talking with a, a number of homeless. Mm-hmm people who may have a criminal background. I'm trying to be very careful how I say this. So I'm curious about your research. Right. So, well, I have on occasion volunteered at a soup kitchen and the homeless shelters in Calgary. And one of my closest friends is a social worker and she she works with, uh, you know, the homeless people, also with uh, people um, fighting addiction or fleeing from abuse. Uh, but to flush out sort of what I knew. I also watched a lot of documentaries about the plight of people um, who find themselves in these situations as, as part of my research. As, as to the scene in the graveyard that um, you mentioned, uh, well, my walking pals and I are known to um, oftentimes uh, traverse the many small pathways that crisscross some of our cemeteries. And uh, you know, it, it's it's kind of an interesting walk because a lot of times we stop to read the headstones, wonder about the person that lies there. So I think I just sort of mesh those two together. It works great. It it that like I say, I, I it stands out for oh, me. Thank you. And I, just so listeners know, I'm not trying to be disrespectful at all um, with regards to homeless people or street people. If in any way that I may be wording my questions. Um, I know there are much greater issues at heart with with regards to people who may be who are living, I'll say, on the edge. Yeah. Um, and I'm whether it's, you know, you could I can be accused of living a sheltered life. I am trying to learn and educate. And it, my biggest learning was when my oldest daughter volunteered at Insight, and she would tell me, she'd send me emails and say, yeah, mom, no, I'm just a block away from uh, DTES. And I'm like, DTES, okay. And it wasn't until a few emails later that I clicked, it clicked for me that DTES in Vancouver was basically the downtown east side. So uh, yeah, so like I said, I'm I don't mean any disrespect. I and I know, you know, I I want to learn. Right, right. I always like our listeners to learn more about the author. And I was wondering, what type of novels do you like to read? Well, I I think Joanna, my go-to novels when I want to sit down and really sort of get away from it all are mystery, mystery, suspense, and thrillers, probably in that order. Uh, but I also like humor. And uh, I'm always blown away by writers like uh, Terry Fallis or Will Ferguson. They're, they're so versatile. Um, but they, the way they incorporate humor into their works is quite amazing. Um, I went through a phase, of course, I think like most people, where I started reading the classics. And so I read a lot of Dickens and Animal Farm and 
1984 and To Kill a Mockingbird and all those good um, classics. And I think Wuthering Heights by Bronte is still one of my favorite books of all time. But other than, you know, the crime genre, I also like narrative fiction and uh, books like uh, Red Notice by Bill Browder. And he was a financier who uh, exposed corruption in, in the Soviet Union at the risk of losing his own life. And uh, so stories like that that are based on uh, actual events that happened, uh, but they're kind of written in a more uh, narrative um, kind of kind of way, which makes it for easier reading. Uh, this year I read The Neuroscientist Who Lost Her Mind, and it's about a neuroscientist who experienced firsthand what her patients had been going through when she herself develops a brain tumor. And uh, so I kind of like these sort of narrative nonfictions as well. Now, Terry Fallis, how do you spell that? Uh, his last name is, I believe, F-A-L-L-I-S. Humor is a hard one. It um, is. It is like art. It is subjective. I have to admit, I've read some of Terry Fallis's work, and I've just howled with laughter. He's He's got a way with words, and um, yeah, he's just quite hilarious. I'll have to look him up. You can, <laughs> my husband said to me the other day, he goes, you've been doing a lot of reading. And I said, I'm trying yeah. to keep, you know, keep on top of the reading for the podcast, you know? So um, now I have just learned about steampunk mm -hmm. novels and I've, I've done a few illustrations with um, cats and like the steampunk wardrobe. Right. And I kind of want to learn a little more about, steampunk novels because that really that's my curiosity with regards to that genre and I was wondering if there's a genre other other than mysteries that you've thought about writing for um well I mean I I do want to try my hand at a good creepy psychological thriller but I really don't see myself at this point straying far from you know the crime genre whether that's you know psychological thrillers or or, uh, you know, the, the more traditional PI kind of mystery. So I don't know, maybe in the future, but at this point in time, I'm kind of having fun sticking with the crime genre. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> my favorite question, and believe it or not, um, to the authors who have been on this podcast and who will be coming on this podcast, I actually received an email yesterday from a listener who said to me, you know, I liked Judy Penn-Shalak's answer um, when you asked her that question at the end about what her characters would say to her. The listeners know, and I have a feeling if I don't, don't ask this question, I will receive an email saying, you didn't ask your favorite question. Okay, so here we go. My favorite, que favorite question now. If Georgia stepped off the pages of your novel, because she wanted to have a few words with you, and you can even add in her waggling her finger. <laughs> what would she say? Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> well, maybe she would say, thanks for letting me be me and not turning me into some sort of caricature. Um, or she might say, when are you going to let me leave Alberta and chase a kid in some warm, exotic <laughs> location? <laughs> So any anything you would like to add, Alice? Uh, not really. I'm I the questions you've asked her are are awesome. And you know, it makes me realize that um I've come quite a long ways. I probably still have a very long way to go as an author, but I've come a, a long ways since 2014 when I first started to sit down and stared at that blank piece of paper. Um and, you know, I guess I, I just want to say to anybody out there that's listening, that's thinking about writing a novel, you actually should. You know, it, yeah. it may look like a horrendous task, but, you know, if you just take it one step at a time, you can get it done. And, uh, yeah. I agree. And I have to say, it would be a shame if your novels never saw the light of day, because I am thoroughly well, enjoying thank you them. So much. Thank you so and, much for that, um, Joanna. 
where where can listeners find you on the socials? I'm getting wow. better at saying that. <laughs> well, yeah, I feel I feel like somewhat of a newbie when it comes to socials. I am on Twitter. I'm AEBNY on Twitter. I'm also on Facebook. I've recently opened an Instagram account and um I I actually wanted to take photos of George's um you know, the books and where Georgia travels and posts them on my Instagram account, maybe post COVID, I'll get out there a little more. Um, my website is www.alicebienia.com, all one word. And uh, if you go there and sign up for a newsletter I have, you'll be able to download the free prequel to the Georgia Knight series that talks about how she was attacked at her former job and, and sort of what transpired uh, to her move to becoming a PI, uh, which I just wrote this year. And uh, that prequel is called Night Shift. Okay. Okay. Where can we find you on Twitter? A-E-B-I-E-N-I-A. Again? So A-E-B-I-E-N-I-A. And on Instagram? I'm on Instagram. Yeah, it's Bienia. Okay. Thank you. I will find you. Thank you so much, Alice, for coming on my podcast. Uh, this has been such a joy. And um Actually, I look forward to the next books coming out. Gosh, we should rebook you for March in the summer. Thank you very much, Joanna. Thank you for having me on the program. And I'm really glad you enjoy uh, reading Nightblind. And this has been a lot of fun. So thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Alice.